Science. Science Po. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the next episode of Science Po's research podcast, where we discuss uh, issues related in this season. We discuss issues related to environmental transformation and the frontier research our scholars at Sianspo do on these uh, very important subjects. I'm Sergei Guriev, the provost at Sianspo, and today with me I have Thomas Kaisel, who is a new, uh, newly arriving uh, postdoctoral fellow, uh, Latour Postdoc. This is a program we launched uh, last year where we recruit uh, 10 uh, postdoctoral researchers working on issues related to environment and climate. And Tom is the first uh, postdoc who arrived in April and started to work on history of economic growth and the relationship uh, between uh, growth and nature in the philosophy and history of economic thought. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Uh, uh, please tell us uh, a bit about uh, your project you've started to work on uh, at Sianspo. Yeah, first of all, thank you for the invitation that I can uh, talk about this uh, yeah, wonderful new project and the opportunity you've given me to actually work these uh, themes out. So what I want to do for the coming three years is uh, writing an intellectual history of the conception of economic growth and in particular tracing back where our idea of limitless growth comes from. So limitless growth, of course, is has a very central place in our political thinking and our uh, economic thinking and, and has been criticized uh, a lot um, for the past 40 years at least um, but still it's, it remains I think um, yeah a type of thinking we cannot easily get around so what I wanted to research was how where does this idea actually come from and um, why did it become popular and, and yeah this is, this is a great moment to talk about those issues because it is exactly today when we have this soul-searching in the high uh, uh, policy-making offices, but also in academic, in academic institutions, to what extent we should challenge this idea of growth. There are academics and policymakers who talk about the end of the limitless growth, end of economic growth. They ask, they demand, they require us to rethink maybe we should start thinking about degrowth. Uh, President Macron, we are in Paris today, President Macron recently said that the epoch of uh, uh, abundance, epoch of prosperity is finished. The President of Ireland also challenged uh, the economic thinkers recently to rediscuss, uh, rediscuss our socioeconomic model. Uh, but uh, for somebody like me, for an economist, Growth is something very positive. Economists usually say that the last 200 years increased income per capita in the world on average. And we don't talk about uh, more successful countries, but just on average in the world, the incomes have grown by 15 times. And average person in the world today is uh, living on uh, uh, incomes which are close to what uh, the World Bank calls high-income countries. So as China is going to become high-income country soon, the average person in the world will be living in a, in a high-income country. So uh, for that uh, reason, people who are worried about global poverty, people who are worried about innovation that we need to address uh, climate change and other environmental um, challenges, people uh, are engaged in this uh, important 
but a very controversial debate on, on, on the growth models. And it is interesting to compare what we discussed today to what people discussed 200 years ago, 300 years ago. Uh, Malthus, Mill, um, uh, who, who looked at those issues and the relationship between growth and nature. So what, uh, uh, what, what do you think uh, you will learn from this project? <laughs> yes, yeah, so of course, I'm, I, uh, well, as I probably already indicated, uh, this research is very much um inspired by these current debates that you uh, lay out so uh, uh just now um and what i want to show perhaps first of all that i think that the discussions that we're having right now feel quite novel although of course they they started uh, already in 1970 so we, we've been having these discussions already for quite some time now um and, but that those issues are not new so we tend to think of that issues of economy are completely separated from questions of nature and environment. Uh, and that it is only, yeah, let's say with the Limits to Growth Report, the Club of Rome, that an effort has been made to um, yeah, give a place in, of nature in economic thinking and to integrate environmental issues in economic thought. But if we study the history of economic thought, we find that this issue is much older, that uh, issues of nature, of the environment, have been interwoven with economic thought um, well, throughout the 19th century and the 18th century. And it actually is more of a 20th century yeah, um, um, rarity or uh, an anomaly that actually those two, those two spheres got separated. So given that we now have to rethink our relations between the environment and the economy, it might be worthwhile to look at this larger picture of the history of economic thought and see how actually there might be a continuation of thinking about the environment and the economy. So, yeah. So what exactly was the thinking of uh, people like Malthus and uh, John Stuart Mill on, on these on this issues? So to, what extent, uh, uh, to what extent they understood the relationship between economy and nature and understood the limits of growth or idea of limitless growth, uh, yes. what, uh, what did they say? Perhaps I should notice that the notion of economic growth as we use it today is, of course, very technical. We have a very precise definition. You don't find that in Smith or Malthus or Ricardo, but they talk about a similar uh, complex of ideas that, that express, I think, a similar idea, although um, the question they investigate is a bit different. So they tend to talk about progress of the economy, development of the economy, and the growth economy, somewhat interchangeable. But remarkably, I would say, they didn't thought it was endless or limitless. And they had all kinds of ideas of that um, economies would grow, would prosper, but then there would be moments of decline or stagnation. And um, Thomas Maltz, of course, is a very dramatic example of <laughs> that he has this theory that this like is almost an inescapable faith of the economies that they uh, must must come down in a certain point in the so-called Matusian trap. And um, what's remarkable, I think, is that it's only in the middle of the 19th century that, and I think John Stuart Mill's at least uh, one of the first that formulate such an idea that um, that there might be something of an, an continuing growth. In, in the far, far future, like, uh, and so an endless growth. And um, this has everything to do, I think, with 
the limits that um, or thinking about the limits of that nature poses on the economy. Um, in, the, in the case of uh, Maltos, uh, it's not really an environmental consideration, but actually, in, in some people would say a simple technical calculation that mm -hmm. if, if uh, uh, what you, we produced is produced with a fixed amount of land, uh, the, the limit to growth is just based on a very simple idea that uh, the more people uh, are on earth and people multiply at a at an exponential rate whatever even if this rate is very slow eventually the marginal productivity of each additional uh, hectare of land will decline and so eventually will produce less and less and so we 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 get into this trap which is imposed by the very fact that uh, production is agricultural we need land we cannot build another planet and uh, today of course people think about agriculture being a very small part of our economies we need food we need land but uh, people talk about innovation and so today we define uh, sustainability very differently what what were the discussion about sustainability the limits to growth imposed by nature uh, for somebody like uh, John Stuart Mill, when he talked about limitless or limited growth, uh, how he would define the limits imposed by nature. There's an interesting shift in how people think about sustainability in this period. So for beginning of the 19th century, with figures as uh, Maltus, um, the idea of sustainability, there was still very much an idea that's okay, land is limited, but Nature ultimately is uh, endlessly uh, generating uh, new sources of wealth, energy. So and it's regenerating. So we can use land and then it gets exhausted, but you know, nature will regenerate itself. There's a, this is like an inherent um, ability of nature that it is spontaneous regenerating itself. And therefore it's also um, a limitless and, and yeah, a source of, source of energy, source of uh, um, uh, wealth. Um, and like the question then for Maltus is not so much like um, this or, or resources get exhausted, but rather like, you know, uh, for example, you can cut, cut down a forest, but it takes quite a long time to grow back. So there is a very uh, strict limit. Like you cannot cut down all the forests because then you have a very low supply on uh, fuel. Um, but then in the middle of the 19th century in, in advances in, in uh, chemistry and biology, um, there's a real realization that actually nature is not always uh, regenerating itself. You can actually exhaust soil in such a manner that it will not be fertile in the future again. So then sustainability becomes a whole new problem. The problem before was like, how do we manage resources so that nature has enough time to regenerate itself? And now the problem becomes like more, more urgent and perhaps for our ears more modern in the sense like um, that people are realizing, no, um, if we continue using the earth resources, we might actually uh, exhaust it permanently. And this can cause of course, like a very strict limit on how the economy can grow. And when, when did this idea became um, known, uh, spread? Uh, I'm asking this because we see ebb and flows, we see changes in the consensus, in the sense of urgency. 
you mentioned uh, Club of Rome, Meadows report 60 years ago, 70 years ago, people understood that the planet is, is going to be destroyed. We will run out of resources. Later on, economists, and you study economists of the second half of 20th century, economists would say, look at those alarmists in innovation, technological progress has actually reduced our need for natural resources per unit of GDP. Mm -hmm. We have new technologies. We will sort out those issues. Uh, competition and innovation is going to take care of this. So let's try to find economic solutions uh, to this uh, problem. And so it's interesting to see in your research at what time uh, the urgency of uh, the need to pay attention to sustainability emerges as a intellectual consensus. And it's at, at what time economists um, say, uh, look, this is uh, not such an urgent problem. So this evolution of, of economic thought is, is really an interesting, interesting question. And uh, to what extent the growing consensus today of this uh, end of uh, prosperity, end of growth, and the need for degrowth, this debate today is also temporary. Uh, to what extent uh, we think that this is the uh, urgency time, or we think that this is yet another temporary alarmist period? Yes, um, no, that's an interesting question. And... Um, and what I think is so interesting from the specific period that I uh, investigate, um, so middle of the 19th century, is that, so, of course, um, in times of prosperity, then questions of scarcity from the past always seems a bit laughable, perhaps. Um, and it would you would expect that in the time, for example, when an organic economy ends and we go to fossil fuel and, like, the second industrial revolution starts and like um, development of technology goes buck wild and that that such pessimism of like Maltes is very laughable because you know um, we have technology now to solve such issues um, but 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 then like the the writings of mill actually comes like just before this this massive like energy transition towards um, coal so Mill didn't have this technological optimism from first-hand experience of a second uh, industrial revolution, you could say. So actually, he was more confronted, you could say, with the limits of growth, or actually you could say that he was one of the first that formulated limits of growth in a very modern sense, far more than, than Malthus was or Adam Smith was. And what the more remarkable thing is, is that, that he apparently flips things around and starts to think, okay, how can we then make growth potentially uh, endless or limitless? So there's, that's, and that's what's interesting me that not, not to look only in at like um, this ebb and flows of uh, positivism, uh, uh, optimism and, 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 and pessimism, but really like um, go to more intellectual level and see like what are the steps taken intellectual, how does our thinking change um, that we might conceive of um, limits or non-limits. Um. Yeah, I think I think one of the interesting questions. So you're you're mentioning the sources of optimism and pessimism in the current perform economic and social performance. To what extent people are more optimistic generally, and therefore more optimistic regarding economic growth and uh, its sustainability. Uh, uh, the other the other thing is knowledge and uh, 
a transparency of what's going on. Today, we know much more about the history in economic terms, in environmental terms, and we know much more about today's situation. So uh, in a sense, uh, we have a lot of data on what's going on with the nature today. And so that creates a sense of urgency and that creates the source of uh, pessimism, the justified source of pessimism. So the urgency is here. Um, to what extent you already mentioned that people understood and measured economic growth in a very different way in the times of Mill and Adam Smith. Um, but to what extent you think uh, that uh, thinkers like Mill and Smith were better informed or less well informed and that also created a uh, created source of optimism, pessimism when they wrote. To what extent uh, uh, their knowledge of the situation within nature uh, was per se uh, an input into their thinking about limits of growth? Um, yeah, of course. I mean, if you compare it to fast knowledge of, of how these things work now, then of course, then, then um, yeah, um, they didn't understand these these dynamics uh, uh as well as we do now and like also like i tried to perhaps stress um in the previous question or in my previous answer like the, the the situation is quite different now um because we have a completely different type of economy that's well takes its majority of its energy sources from fossil fuel um which poses a completely different the interesting thing is is that Mill, uh, for example, is the, perhaps the first one to really be confronted with a knowledge of how the uh, nature functions. Um, that really understands like um, how how the fertility of the soil actually works, so we can understand why it is fertile or, or exhausted. So there is like actually a boom of really new insights in nature and really modern insights. Um, um and and this is precisely the, the thinking that i would say or at least that what i'm trying to research uh, that that inspires me to rethink ideas on on economic um yeah growth so basically what you're saying is Mill, unlike smith or unlike malthus uh, had access to uh, new discoveries in biology and chemistry and physics and therefore was better informed on the other hand if we think about this um that's also the time where advances in science also created additional sense of optimism, right? And so the question is what the solution Mill was thinking about. You mentioned that he turned around the question of limits to growth, thinking about how we can overcome those limits and how we create a model of sustainable limitless growth. Uh, what uh, would he propose to us living in 21st century? Yes, um and it's not my my point that we should learn from from mill or something <laughs> that mill has the answer precisely not because uh or precisely not it's interesting to think that i think what mill proposes is very modern or like the, the roots or the an, an invention of of how we think of these matters today but for mill it was still something of a question to figure out and he's struggling with that and that that might that makes his research interesting to what extent their their way of thinking informs us today to what extent your research on on cpb informs us today whether it's dangerous or useful yes to give okay. policy making yeah. uh, tools to policy making leadership uh to economists so so perhaps um to, to answer this question um i can i can tell very briefly 
what actually led me for my uh, so my PhD thesis, which was on uh, Dutch planning and then especially uh, Dutch Central Planning Bureau, to this research of of economic growth in the in the in the nineteenth century. What I think that was very evident in the works of Mill is that there is very much a reformist agenda at work. So he's not only thinking about uh, agriculture, land use, but he's also thinking about the social questions. And of course, he has a very liberal answer to those, uh, which very different from from socialist thinkers from the time. But still, he like he he's urging for like quite quite radical reforms. And what I'm somewhat looking, if you look at the past thirty years or in uh, Dutch planning debates or Dutch economics debates, I'm I'm somewhat actually missing this this urge for reforms that. These, the use of economic thought actually is somewhat stifling and perhaps makes um, how policy is made, how public discussions are held um, is, is somewhat uh, rigid because of our rigid way of economic thinking. So indeed, broadening up this discussion, make it perhaps more interdisciplinary. Same one that Donald Trump was uh, elected, like uh, a lot has shifted because people, there's been a lot of soul searching also in the uh, economics profession and like a lot of new gener- and younger generation that have a, a way more diverse and more empirical way of thinking about economic issues have come to the forefront. And I think even in the Dutch Central Planning Bureau, which is in a very interesting situation right now because... Um, especially after the, the COVID pandemic, um, had, you see that in the COVID pandemic, they were really challenged by the way how they thought about the Dutch economy. Because, of course, in, in our very chaotic times of, of, of uh, inflation, but also, of, uh, well, during the COVID time, of course, massive, massive, massive stimulation of the economy, well, energy prices with the Ukraine war in Ukraine, like these are all issues the CPB, although they're like so the Dutch Central Planning Bureau, although they like their their main task is to produce these these uh, um, uh, these these long middle long visions of how the Dutch economy. They of course didn't predict any of this, so they had to somewhat reinvent also like how they would uh, advise the government and on what kind of issues. And I think they're, st- they're still in this process at the moment so there, there's a lot happening uh, in that sense so dutch dutch economics has also changed uh, in the way the global economics profession has changed which is not surprising the economics profession is global so that affects everybody including cpb and indeed 2016 was a big game changer for everybody in the economics profession brexit and trump victory uh started to make uh, economists think about political economy of uh, um uh, policy making and uh, we will talk about this in our next season when we, we discuss uh, challenges to democracy from uh, populist and authoritarian, authoritarian politicians another game changer was actually global economic global financial crisis 2008-2009 when people started to rethink uh, the model of growth as well because uh, fun, uh, fin- uh, deregulated finance turned out to be uh, dangerous for uh, financial stability so indeed uh, 21st century brought a number of challenges for economists who have developed uh, their uh, their thinking and uh, yet, uh, uh, the question is, uh, to what extent you think uh, that uh, we should be optimistic or pessimistic today? 
this is usually why we talk to historians, including historians of thought. We, uh, we cannot know the future, but we know the past, so we can look at the past and uh, uh, probably in one or two words we can ask you whether you think we should be optimistic and pessimistic. And another thing, which another question I would like to ask you, uh, <laughs> if you were a prime minister of Netherlands or if you were president of France, uh, what, what would you do? But first let's ask uh, the first question, yeah. whether your research makes you optimistic or pessimistic. I have the feeling that we're in a very transitional phase. Um, and this can be Positive, and I really hope for the positive, of course. Um, generally, um, looking more at the positive side, but I can see also like this is not a done deal. Um, so it might be precisely interesting to to understand like what do we need to do now? Can we learn something from the past of, to to regain something of a yeah more energy to actually reform things and do things differently yeah um oh, thanks uh, so you are also believing in human agency so if you have human agency if you are in the chair in the place of uh, of decision makers so what would you do to save the planet to save us all yeah well um uh, actually the, the, the one thing in my mind is so that the, 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 the Dutch government recently decided to return to their good old austerity measures. And there have been a lot of talk about budgeting rules and the EU more broadly also. If you compare um, the EU green agenda with those of the Biden administration, which has a very different um, kind of approach, and the EU seems to quite um, element on sticking to those budgeting rules. And... I think it's, it's it's become very clear that we have to drastically rethink those. Thank you very much, Thomas. Uh, I think as, as an economist, I can assure you that this debate is not finished. Uh, and indeed, there are many challenges to the current thinking of uh, European policymakers on fiscal rules. There are many important dissenting vote, uh, voices uh, that, ch that would support your view that uh, we need to be more flexible. On budget, in, on budget rules, on fiscal rules to support uh, green transition in Europe. And I think, uh, I think uh, that gives us again a uh, source of hope and source of optimism regarding human agency in this particular case of economists challenging uh, prime ministers who are too conservative. So uh, on that optimistic note, I would like to uh, wrap up our conversation. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast and uh, for everybody. Stay tuned. We will have more conversations about environmental economics and environmental transition in the next uh, episodes of this podcast. Thank you very much. Science. Science.